James this morning. I'm going to read from James chapter 4, verse 1. It's page 1215 in your pew Bibles, 1215, James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Amen. Well, we've been in the book of James for some time now, and uh, you will know by now, I hope, that James writes to the scattered saints of God. They've been scattered in large part because of the persecution of the church. They are living in a world which is very dark and very dangerous and very difficult for Christians to live in. Uh, but sadly, the letter of James isn't a well-done letter. It's not a, I know that you have things really tough, that life is really hard for you as believers in Jesus, but you're doing really well. Keep up the good work. That's not uh, the type of letter 
that James is. It's more of a, what are you doing? Uh, have you lost your Christian minds later? And we found that in every one of our stops as we've journeyed through this letter of James. And as we come to James chapter 4, it's more of the same. They're not doing very well. They're living in a very dark world. So it's difficult, it's challenging to be faithful to Jesus in a world like that. But also in another sense, it's a great opportunity. The darker the world that, that surrounds the church the brighter we ought to shine for the Lord as we follow him. But these people to whom James writes are not shining like a beacon in the darkness because they are living their lives in the same fashion as the world which surrounds them. They have conformed to the image of the world. They have not been transformed to the image of Christ Jesus, their Lord's. They have this great opportunity to shine for Jesus, to show the world a better way to live, a better Lord to follow, a better God, God to serve. But time and time again, they fail. And here we find them fighting and squabbling, tearing into each other with their tongues, helping only those that they think can help them back. The underlying issue that we see time and time again in James is that these believers are not living their lives in a way that makes sense given what they say they believe. It's out of sync. There's a, there's a disconnect. If they really believe what they say they believe, then the lives that they live will be different. And it's the same again in James chapter 4. It's another chapter of rebuke. But my hope and my prayer is that we will be able this morning to take a moment to see the beauty in this chapter, to see the goodness in this telling off that James gives to these scattered saints. If I see two wee boys being nasty to each other in the street, the chances are I'm not going to get involved. I'm not responsible for them. I don't know them. They're not mine. I don't, to be really blunt about it, and this doesn't put me in a very good light probably, but I probably don't really care if I see two wee boys being nasty to each other in the street. But if my two girls are being nasty to each other, then it's different. I'll get involved because I love them and I care for them. And I want them to learn and to grow and to mature and to be the best people that they can be. They are my responsibility. And so as we, we come to another rebuke, I'm aware that we might think, well, it's just the same thing over and over again. But it's important that we take a moment to remember that this is a good thing. God 
loves his children. He wants them to learn and to grow and to flourish and to be all that they can be, to be the best people that they can be. When I uh, give Katie or Grace a, a, a telling off, they might not see in the moment that I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it because I love them, because I want them to, to flourish in life. I hope one day they'll see that. They might not see it in the short term. And maybe the people to whom James wrote all those years ago didn't see behind this rebuke the love of God. But that's what's there. They're receiving this rebuke because God loves them, because God cares for them, because, because God wants the best for them. He wants them to flourish and to grow and to mature and to experience the best life that they can experience. This chapter really is all about the relationship that God has with His people. The relationships that they have with one another, they're wrong. But the reason that they are wrong is because the relationship that they have with God is wrong. So the desire of God is for them to be brought back into right relationship with Him. And then they will be brought back into right relationship with each other. And so as the chapter begins, it's almost like God's people are fighting like spoiled and selfish children. You'll see that in the first three verses. That's how it, it, it reads to me, almost like James is a father telling off his self-centered children who are in the back seat squabbling. One child sees the toy that the other child has, and they want it. And so the fight kicks off. The argument starts, and on it goes. Childish, selfish, and foolish behavior. The tragedy is that they are so fixated on each other in the back seat that they're no longer looking at their loving father who sits in the front seat, ready to provide what they need for them. That's where they should be looking. Verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Why try and grab something from someone else when your Father is there with you? ready and able to provide all that you need. And He is the perfect Father. So I, I love my girls, but I'm not all-knowing. I don't always know what's best for them. And even when I do know what I would like to give to them, 
I'm not always able from the resources that I have, I'm not preaching for a pay rise, but I'm not always able from the resources that I have to provide that for them. But neither of these two things are true for God. He is the all-knowing God. He knows what we need perfectly. All-knowing, all-seeing. And He is the God who is always able to provide for those needs. He is never uh, lacking in resources with which to bless His children. He is our Heavenly Father. He knows our needs. He is able to supply that need. He is willing, but our asking is part of the plan. Let it not be said of us, you have not because you ask not. He's not lacking in love. He's not lacking in resources. He's not too busy or too distant to hear the prayers of His children. So why, use, why don't they use the energy that they are wasting on bickering with each other? to ask their Father for what they need. Ask and it will be given to you, says Jesus. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? So if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So what do you need? What good gifts do you need? And how has your asking been recently? How has your prayer life been of late? Are you spending time and energy coveting or grumbling or gossiping? You could be asking your Father who loves you for what you need. Spurgeon says, grass cannot call for dew as I do. Surely the Lord who visits the unpraying plant will answer to his pleading child. Now, obviously, we have to come with a humility that understands he knows better than we do what we need. He has a, a perspective that is infinitely greater than our perspective. And even in our lives, our Christian lives, as we look back, we can see things that we prayed for, that we pleaded for, that seemed good to us at the time, and now we are so thankful that the Lord said no to that prayer. Of course that's true. Uh, any loving father says no to his children at times. And yes, we need to come with humility. James isn't telling these scattered saints to bark their demands at God. I don't know if you've ever uh, read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory 
or seen one of the films, maybe. We're not to be like Veruca. This will mean nothing to you if you've not, so apologies. But we're not to be like Veruca, Salt and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's the, the wee girl who just says, when she sees something, Daddy, I want that. Get me it now. And on and on it goes. Everything she sees, Daddy, get me that now. That's not what James is saying to these saints of God, that we are to be uh, selfish and entitled and demand of God what we want when we want it. And actually, there is some asking that's going on. There's some praying that's going on. They're not praying enough. Most of the time, they're just coveting what their brothers and sisters have and, and fighting and bickering and trying to to steal and wrestle away stuff from each other. But there is some praying that's going on. But look at what James says in verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So the expectation here is not that we would just take our selfish entitled hearts to God and remain unchanged, that we would demand of God what it is that we think we need, what it is that we want. No, we are to come to God with humility, with confidence, because He is our Father and He loves us. He is able to supply our needs with confidence in Christ, but also with humility and with gratitude. So we find here a warning, but also an invitation to those who receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. God becomes Father. We are adopted into His family. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God? Have you received Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? If you have, then make sure you're a man or a woman of prayer. And if you do that, then you will be a man or woman of peace. If your relationship with God the Father is healthy and vibrant and strong, then your relationships with the people around you will be healthy and vibrant and strong. God is Father For those in Christ, God as Father. Also, God as friend. We used to be enemies of God by our very nature. By our very nature, we were against God. By our very nature, we desired to be God over our own lives. But no more. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, says Paul. 
while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How wonderful that is. All gift, all grace, Christ has earned for us what we could never have earned for ourselves. Fellowship and friendship with God. And yet some of these people to whom James writes are acting as friends of the world. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Jesus in John chapter 15 calls his followers friends. And then he says to them, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. So we need to be in the world, but not of the world. And, and that's the, you know, you, you can fall off the horse on either side. As you look at the history of the church, sometimes it's swung this way, sometimes it's swung that way. We need to be in the world because if we're not in the world, we're achieving nothing. We are an irrelevance, an invisible irrelevance, we might say, if we're not in the world. We're hiding our light if we're not in the world. We're leading no one to Christ if we're not there to lead them to Christ. We need to be in the world. But if we are of the world, then we're not an invisible irrelevant... I knew I shouldn't have said that. It's too much for me. We're not an invisible irrelevance. We are an indistinguishable irrelevance. We have no light to shine in the first place. What good is that? The water has to be in the boat. The boat has to be in the water, but the water must not be in the boat. If there's too much impure water of the world in the boat, if we are behaving like everyone else, if we are greedy and selfish and childish and foolish, then we'll affect no change for God. We'll achieve nothing. And that was the case for these people to whom James was writing. There was too much of the water of the world in the boat. There was too much of the wisdom of the world in the church. They had no light to shine. They had lost their saltiness. They had become friends with the world at the expense of their friendship with God. So firstly, if they remember in Christ God is their Father, they will be far less likely to fight with their brothers and sisters. 
Secondly, if they remember that in Christ God is their friend, they will be far less likely to embrace the wisdom of the world around them, just to be carried along with the flow. And they will be a lot more likely to be salt and light in a world which so desperately needs to see and to hear a better way. Lastly, if you look again at verse 4, it starts with these words. It says, you adulterous people. Now, that is a terrible thing to hear. No one wants to be called an adulterer. But actually, there is a great truth here. We are in Christ in a covenant relationship with God. This is the language of a spouse who has been forsaken. And we see this kind of language often in the prophets. So in Isaiah, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. In Jeremiah, return home, you wayward children, says the Lord, for I am your husband. In Hosea, in that coming day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. James picks up that imagery as he says to the people of God living under the new covenant, you adulterous people. They have given their love to false gods. They have forsaken their first love. He is a jealous God. He wants His people to be faithful. If you are married, then are you not jealous for the love of your husband or your wife? But there is good news. There is hope. Because He is a good and a gracious husband. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Do you need to return to him? Have you been flirting with things which you know to be wrong? Then be assured you don't need to run away from God, fearful of his anger. You are able to run to God, assured that He gives, verse 6, more grace. Verse 8, come near to God, and He will come near to you. He is like a faithful husband to receive uh, the bride he has never stopped loving. He is like the father who runs to welcome home his prodigal child with unreserved joy. Come to me, he says, and I will come near to you. Come assured that he has more grace to give. But come in humility. Come knowing that to say yes to him is to say no to the false gods of the world. Come knowing that 
that he demands wholehearted devotion to him. He demands all of our lives. He will not be a, a hobby or a kind of bolted on extra to the lives that we are living. Come knowing that your identity as a child of God is gifted, is grace. And it requires wholehearted devotion and a willingness to stand out from the world. Come remembering that to love God is to love the people of God. It is to refuse to bicker and to squabble and to fight and to covet that which belongs to your brothers and your sisters. Come to Him, assured of His love and His grace. Come to Him and be honest about your failings. Be sorry for the way in which you have flirted with false gods who can never satisfy. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. Be assured of His unending, unfailing love and grace and goodness and faithfulness to His people. And remember, that all of these blessings are ours because of Jesus. We know God as our Father and our friend because of Jesus. And so, as we stand together uh, to sing our closing hymn, we celebrate all that God has given to us in Jesus. We rejoice in our Redeemer and in the presence of God with his people as we sing, there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son.